Good morning. Was it a good Thanksgiving? Good, fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. Let's pray and let's dive into God's word together. Father, it's good to be here, gathered with your people. We pray that you would cause your word to have its sanctifying effect in us, to make us more like your son. Father, as we talk about uh, this thing called godly grief, pray that you would make us uh, willing to hear your word. We pray that we would be willing to have tough conversations where they're needed. And pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to do that because we know that the strength that we need is not in us. Father, our aim, our desire is that our affections for you would be fanned into a raging inferno, that we would love you first and most, that we would put away everything that causes us to not love you and draw in those things which cause us to love you more and Pray that you would shape us as a church into your likeness. May we not just be individuals who carry about the likeness of Christ, but make us a church through our relationships. Paul calls them our joints in Ephesians in the body where these two members come together. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our relationships to be healthy. That we would love one another. Make us a church that is long on grace. Long on grace, Lord Jesus. Church that cares deeply about righteousness. Shape us. We're yours. It's a delight to be yours, to be led by you. Have your way with us, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name for your sake. Amen. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue our journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. I was thinking about this the other day. Now, if you've been with us in this book, you recognize where we've titled the whole journey through the book, Strength and Weakness. And what we've, the reason we've done that is because one of the things we're recognizing, if, again, if you've been with us, is that so many of the things that we embrace when we're followers of Jesus are sort of upside down thinking that very different than what, the way we thought before we knew Jesus. We maybe thought certain things that made us strong and valuable. We no longer find strength and value in those things. And things that we used to think kind of made us look weak or you know, unwieldy or things that, that we just didn't pride or joy, take joy in. All of a sudden now in Jesus we find that those are the very things we delight in. Would you say you've experienced that kind of upside down thinking? If you're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps something to, to just make you aware of as you're considering whether or not he's worth following is that when you come to him, ultimately one of the things that you'll find is that he flips everything upside down. Everything just changes for you. And I love how in life God uses really kind of basic everyday events and occurrences to remind us of important spiritual truths. And I found this to be true with my one-year-old son. My son Deacon is now one, and he's, getting, he's got that like wobbly drunk walk going on. It's kind of where he's at. And um, so we're having a lot of fun with that, you know. We've decorated the tree on Friday after Thanksgiving, and everything is decorated from here up because everything there down is in danger, uh, and so, you know, he's, he's just a, a bundle of fun. One of his favorite things is when I pick him up and flip him upside down because he's at that age where he can go a good three, four minutes before he blacks out. And we've tested that. And, you know, he's not old like me. He doesn't lose his sense of balance. He just loves it. And I, I mean, I can throw him up, upside down and bring him right back right side up. And he's like diving out of my arms to go back down, upside down. And I was doing that the other day and I was flipping him upside down. I'm like, okay, that's probably enough. And he's like, no, again. And he was just again and again and again, over and over. And I was reminded that he prefers being upside down to being right side up at this stage in his life. And I thought, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm supposed to be like that. I'm supposed to prefer being upside down in, the thinking, in my thinking to being right side up. 
because that's the, what the gospel does. It comes in and it says, hey, if you wanna live, you need to die. If you wanna be strong, you need to be weak. If you wanna be first, you get to be what? Last. And so I'm flipping Deacon around and these days now, whenever he goes upside down, I think to myself, you got it, kid. So we're gonna find another example of upside down thinking that God invites us into. Uh, and it particularly pertains to conflict within, among God's people. Okay, so we're gonna talk about today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses two through 13, we're gonna look at this idea of what it means to be people who are willing to cause and to receive godly sorrow. Now here's what I would offer to you. Here's what I think the, the sort of driving proposition, the driving idea of this passage of scripture is this, is that there is such a thing as godly grief and that we will need to both receive it and to cause it if we're gonna serve God effectively. You guys follow that? Now here's why, I say, here's why I say that there is such a thing as godly grief. And I think it's necessary to say that. It probably wouldn't have been in a, in a previous day and age, but I think it is now because I am more and more convinced that we live in a time when all that causes sorrow, all that is difficult is typically seen as bad. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that that's not really the case. And again, that's a, that's a version of upside down thinking, that things that cause sorrow, things that are difficult, things that are, seem to be to our detriment even, can ultimately be things that are purposed by God for our redemption, for our sanctification, that God intends. And so uh, we have to, I think, start with that idea. If we're going to be those who cause godly grief or those who receive godly grief, we really have to begin by acknowledging and believing that there is such a thing as godly grief. Now, look at verse nine. I'll read the whole thing after I point you to verse nine. But here's why I say that, that there is such a thing as godly grief, because he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So that probably gives you a hint of where we're headed in the sermon. But then he says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So there's our phrase, godly grief. A couple things to keep in mind. When he says godly grief, that phrase is literally, the literal translation of that would be, uh, you felt made sorrowful according to the will of God. That's probably the, like, if you just went word for word of the Greek to the English, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Now here's what that tells us. Is that there is a sorrow which is according to what? The will of God. It's intentioned, it's purposed by him. Paul is talking here, just to give you our context, if you haven't been with us through this whole journey in 2 Corinthians, let me kind of bring you up to speed and I'll refresh those of us who have been on this journey. The thing to remember is that Paul is, has some conflict with this Corinthian church. And if you remember, uh, Paul had gone to deal with a, a, an issue that had created conflict within the church. And he, when he'd gone to deal with it, those that had kind of risen to power within the church essentially said, we're not gonna listen to you, Paul. And they booted him out. And so there was conflict now between Paul and the, those who were kind of leading and influencing the Corinthian church. And so he wrote what he called his painful or his sorrowful or his tearful letter. We don't have that letter. It's not available to us, but it's one of the four letters that he wrote. We have two of the four. He wrote that, and this passage is gonna refer to that letter, to him writing that letter, sending it with Titus, and he had gone to Macedonia to await Titus coming back there to tell him how they had received that letter. So he'd written this difficult letter. He had, he had intended, according to this, to write a hard letter and it produced a godly grief. 
They were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that they wouldn't experience a loss. Now we'll get into what that means. But again, we begin by understanding that there is such a thing as godly grief. Now, as much as I don't like just doing lists, all right, here's what I felt compelled to do. I just want to give you nine things, nine lessons about godly grief. I promise nine things will go fast. Two to three minutes on each, right? So I just want to touch on a number of things because if we're going to be people who are able to cause godly grief, and remember, think about grief in this context, this word, not as like the grief you feel when you lose a loved one, but as the sorrow you feel over your sin. That's the grief Paul is talking about. When I've done something wrong, when I've offended God, when I haven't done something pleasing to him, I feel a sense of grief or sorrow over that in my life. That's what Paul is talking about with the Corinthians when he talks about this idea of a godly grief. So, Let's go through nine things that help us understand. Oh, and I should say, by the way, uh, for my conflict avoiders, those who like the idea of engaging in a conversation like this is like the scariest thing you can possibly imagine. Okay, let me say this to you. Okay, hold out hope. There is hope because as much as you may not like this kind of a conversation, one of the things I want you to recognize is you actually have the ability to be the most effective in these kinds of, a com- in the, these kinds of conversations because your reticence to engage them, your gentleness typically when you do engage them makes you incredibly powerful when you will engage in these kinds of conversations. So I just wanna set that in front of you. If you tend to avoid conflict, you actually have the potential to be the most powerful in creating what Paul talks about here, godly grief in the life of other followers of Jesus, uh, more so than those of us who seek out conflict. Now, I I'm, I'm, I'm probably grew up more as a conflict avoider, to be honest. That's kind of where my background is. Let me say, if you are one who loves a little conflict, if you love to seek it out, if you find yourself always looking for a good verbal joust, okay, uh, there are gonna be some insights here for you as well because what this is not talking about is just going to look for a fight everywhere you go. Uh, a couple things for us to keep in mind. If you, you need to know if that's your bent, okay? That's a, that can be a God-given bent, but you need to know a couple things and keep, let's keep them in mind, okay? Let's keep in mind that love covers a multitude of sins, so this is not about us just running around looking for people that we can offend, okay? And number two, Number two, let's be reminded of Jesus' teaching, right, that before we would remove the speck in our brother's eye, we should pay attention to the what in our own eye, to the log in our own eye. So there's, there's, an, there's a, a teaching there for us to be mindful of hypocrisy, to be mindful of saying, yeah, I see a problem there, when in actuality you've got a massive problem. And it, and it means that we need to pay attention, right, to what goes on in our own lives. So, all right, let's dive in. Number one, and we'll throw them up on the screen for you. So if you want to jot them down, you can. Number one, to cause godly grief, you can't place yourself above the one you grieve. To cause godly grief effectively well, you can't place yourself above the one you grieve. Look at verse three. Oh, actually, I haven't even gotten to reading the text, have I? I just got so lost. All right, here we go. Let's read verses two through verse 12, 13 actually. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Okay, I got ahead. Let's go back to number one now, all right? The first thing, we're just gonna work our way down through the text here. The first one is to cause godly grief, you can't place yourself above the one you grieve. And I love this because what Paul does is he front loads the gospel and the necessity of believing the gospel in order to do this well, right? He doesn't backload it, he doesn't wait and kind of go, here's some tips on how to engage in conflict well to be able to cause godly grief and to be good about that. And then at the end, by the way, remember that Jesus died for your sins and be humbled by that. He actually front loads the gospel. And here's how. In verse three, he begins verse two by kind of doing that whole, what we've said, the theme of the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians is he's defending his ministry. And he's saying, look, here's why I'm a man of integrity. Here's why you know you can depend on me. And what I'm saying, does that in verse two. And then in verse three, he says, I do not say this to condemn you. For I, sa- uh, to, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now that's an interesting phrase. Why would you say that phrase specifically when you're talking about writing this hard letter and bringing conflict to them and saying, look, here's what you need to repent of. The reason that he does that is because he's reminding them of the very nature of the gospel. When he says it is for us to die together and to live together, he's reminding them of the truth of the gospel, that in order to come to Jesus, you have to die first. And Corinthians, you have died and come to Jesus. And I have died, Paul, I have died and I have come to Jesus. Therefore, neither of us have any ground for bragging at the foot of the cross. Neither one of us has a leg up when it comes to God's favor or his delight or his pleasure. We are all equally saved by grace through faith. And this is hugely important because if you're going to be able to confront someone in a sin pattern in their life, you're gonna have to not place yourself above them. By the way, that never goes well, does it? When you say, hey, I'm better than you, let me show you how to do this. Let me show you how to change. That never happened. that never works well. But what does work well is to remind yourselves to remember that I am a sinner who has been saved by grace, no merit of my own. And because that's the case, and that's also the case for my brother or sister in Christ, when I go to confront them, I remember that reality. We have died together, and now we have the ability to live together in Christ. So in essence, what Paul is doing is he's pointing the Corinthians back to the gospel and saying to them, look, I'm, I'm not better, I'm not worse, I am one of the followers of Jesus just as you are 
and I'm not putting myself above you, even though he had apostolic authority, right? He had the authority of, a, of an apostle in Christ. That's a unique authority throughout the entire history of the church, the apostles. And yet, here, he doesn't claim that authority. He says, look, here's what you need to know. We have died together in Christ. We now live together in Christ. Now, this is an important thing to remember, too, from this, is that this kind of confrontation is not happening from the church to those outside the church. This is sort of family business, isn't it? This is people within the church saying, let's, let's see what it looks like to live together and be able to even cause godly grief for one another. And here's what I want to say to that, friends. I want so much for us to be the kind of church where we live in right relationship with one another. Because to be honest with you, to be quite frank, there's plenty of places where you can go in the world where relationships go unreconciled, where people don't confront one another in their sin and don't do so graciously. And when people come into this place from those kinds of places, if there's no difference in the way we do things, if the gospel hasn't shaped our thinking in such a way that we're willing to have the hard conversations, but also to do so graciously, if that hasn't happened, if we're avoiding conflict just like everybody else, then then what's the point really? The world needs to walk into a place like this and recognize there's an immense amount of love and grace and truth being spoken into the lives of the people. It's also, by the way, why we want so much for you to engage in smaller pockets of community. We love that you gather here, that we gather here as a body, that we praise God. I hope that you feel you're taught the scriptures well. I hope that you feel you meet with God through the worship. But our ultimate agenda is not for you to remain anonymous in this place. Now we recognize it's easy to be anonymous in a big place like this. There's a lot of people here. And so it's easy to stay that way. And by the way, you can remain anonymous. That's, that's your choice. Our hope is, and what we're gonna continue to do, is never force you out of anonymity. We want to love you out of anonymity. Our goal is that you would become known and that you would know others so that, so that when these moments are needed in our lives, there's somebody that knows you well already and can, can bring that to pass. We're gonna see that that's gonna be really necessary. So that, that's number one. That's number one. To cause godly grief, you can't place yourself above the one you grieve. Number two, boldness is a sign of love and trust. Look at verse four. He says, I'm acting with great boldness. Okay, so there's the boldness. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. What does he say next? I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And right before in verse three, he said, you are in our hearts. In other words, what he's saying is, because we can be bold towards you in relation to this thing in your life that needs to be confronted. We can be bold because we have a relationship of love and trust with you. Because we have a relationship of love and trust with you. Go back to what I just said. One of the reasons we try and invite you into life groups, we champion life groups, these pockets of folks who are living life together, who are sharing and understanding what's going on in one of those lives, is because that's the kind of context that's necessary when you hit these bumps in the road. People who know you well and come to you, you're much more likely to receive and listen to them when they're being bold to to bring you these hard subjects than someone who just walks, who you don't know from Adam, who walks from one side of the sanctuary to the other and says, I just have this sense that you're in the wrong. Right? That didn't work very well. And so he's saying here that boldness is a sign of love and trust. By the way, that also means that if we're not willing to be bold, it means that we don't truly what? We don't truly love. 
Boldness is not just the result of love and trust, it's also the requirement of love and trust. And where there's a lack of boldness, there is typically, friends, there is typically a lack of true, gospel-saturated, Christ-stained love. Christ had this remarkable way. I mean, if you've read the Gospels, you know this, right? He had this remarkable way of, of somehow, he's, he's around, the people that are just the, the worst mistake makers in his day and age, they feel loved, they feel grace from him, they feel received, and yet he never rounds off the hard edges of truth. You never find Jesus going, you know what, it's okay, it's okay that you're doing that. He never does that. There is this remarkable way, and I want to believe that because he lives in us, we can, we can do that too. Do you believe that? I want to believe that we can be the kinds of people that can not round off the hard edges of truth to say the things that are true about righteousness and holiness and who God is and what he requires of us, that we can say those things, but be so captured by the love of God that people, even when you say them, are astounded that they feel loved by you even while being confronted by you. I really want to believe that's possible. Now, Boldness is a sign of love and trust. Perhaps you can think of it this way if it helps you. Imagine, just imagine, would you, would you say this on a first date? Imagine going on a first date and saying to someone, you know, are you colorblind? At which point they might ask, well, why do you ask? Well, because your outfit is so bad. I just, I assumed that that's probably the case, right? You wouldn't do that on a first date. Ladies, you wait until you're engaged to change the wardrobe, Right? that's when the different clothes start showing up in the closet. And men, you know it's true because stuff started showing up. You had no idea. And there was a time where you could dress yourself or you thought you could dress yourself. And then all of a sudden, you couldn't get dressed without someone else's opinion coming into play. So it's the, it's the depth of relationship, the trust and the love that produces the boldness. Things you wouldn't say on a first date, you definitely say when you're married, right? Number three, You will struggle emotionally when you cause others to experience godly grief. Look at verse eight. This is so helpful to me. I think it'll be helpful to you. He says, so in in five, six, seven, he's talking about the letter and the conflict and him being in Macedonia and Titus bringing the word back to him that the Corinthians actually had repented. And then he says in verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Here's what Paul is revealing, is that there was this real emotional turmoil going on, even as he sent his letter. The way I picture it is Paul is sitting down to pen this tearful, sorrowful, painful letter. And even as he's writing it, he's finding himself going, I'm not sure if I'm approaching this just the right way. I'm not sure if I'm saying just the right thing. And the thing you need to know, friends, and I love this because he's, look, I, I sent it and then I, you get the sense that he's like, I regretted it when I, I kind of regretted it. I sent it and I went, oh, that, that, that was kind of tough. That was a hard word that I just sent to these folks. I love them and I want them to hear it, but I'm not even sure if they're gonna be able to hear it. I, I kind of spoke hard, hard things. And he says, I, I regret it, but then, but then I didn't regret it because I knew that it could produce what it needed to produce. And so I, I, I did it. Here's what that tells me, friends, is there's, I used to think that there was gonna come a day where I would, this kind of, having these hard conversations would just get easy. And I love this because what it tells me is it never gets easy. And the reason it doesn't get easy is because you love people and it's hard 
It's hard, and you run the risk of that person rejecting your relationship, rejecting you, pushing you aside when you have these kinds of conversations. Friends, believe me, it's happened to me, and it will happen to you. You can have the best of intentions. You can go with great love, and you can have a very tough conversation and do your very, very best. And the result can sometimes be that the person says, I want you out of my life. I I want you removed from my life. I don't care if your motives are love. At the end of the day, I cannot handle what you are saying to me right now. And it's hard. And that's why it creates emotional turmoil. But I think that there is a gift to us here in that Paul is acknowledging that it's hard and it will always be hard. There's never gonna come a day where this kind of a conversation, you just go, I'm, it's easy. I just nail, I, I know how to nail it. No, you're gonna get, I think, better at having these kinds of conversations, but you should expect it to be emotionally tumultuous. You should expect that it's going to be difficult to have these kinds of conversations. And the reason that's so valuable to know that is because think of it like a marathon, right? The person who shows up to run a marathon and thinks this is gonna be easy is probably not finishing that marathon. They didn't prepare themselves for it. They thought, whatever, I'll just 26.2 miles, I got this, right? It's the person that knows that a marathon is hard and prepares themselves for it, that's the person that probably finishes. And so knowing that when you enter this, because here's what some of us do, is it's, we recognize it's emotionally gonna be hard, and so we just don't have the conversation. We just choose not to have it because it's going to be hard. And perhaps we think to ourselves, when I get more spiritual, when I get more godly, spend more time in prayer, you know, then, then I'll probably find that this won't be so hard. And I just, I wanna say, friends, I don't think that's gonna be the case. I don't think that you are going to find any point in life where it's not gonna be emotionally difficult to engage in these kinds of conversations. And by the way, to be on the receiving end of these kinds of conversations too. Because here's an assumption I make about myself, and I think it's a biblical one that we should probably all make about ourselves. I assume that there will be points in my life where I need to be on the giving and the receiving end of these kinds of conversations. Is that fair? There's gonna be a point where I'm gonna need to receive these kinds of words from others and there's gonna be a point where God is gonna call me to be the giver of these kinds of words, the giver of godly grief, godly sorrow, the recipient of godly grief, godly sorrow. Number four, godly grief can turn people away from sin and back to God. Friends, here, this is the crux of the whole thing. This is the center of Paul's argument when it pertains to godly grief. Here's what he says in verse nine and 10. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I'm gonna pause there because we're gonna touch on worldly grief in the next one. And that's what the last phrase of verse 10 is about. So just notice a couple things there in verses nine and 10 when we talk about godly grief being able to turn people away from sin and back to God. He begins by saying, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. That's an important thing to remember when you're engaging in these kinds of conversations. If you find that in your heart, you're kind of excited to make someone sad, you're probably in the wrong emotional state. Right? He's he's saying, look, I'm not excited to cause grief. That, That doesn't make me happy to make you sad. Doesn't make me happy. But the reality is it is necessary. What what delights me is that not the grief you felt, but the repentance you chose. And the grief was necessary for the repentance. We'll talk about that at the very end. 
So he says, look, godly grief, this is what marks godly grief. It's able to produce a repentance. And then he says, look at how he ends this verse. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Well, that's interesting. Why, Paul, would you say you suffered no loss through us? What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, I was willing to, in fact, Paul feels obligated to engage in this difficult, with this difficult letter because he recognizes that if he doesn't, the Corinthians very well may experience a loss in the presence of God when they meet him. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15? If you're taking notes, you might want to jot that one down. 1 Corinthians 3, 15. We talked about this a couple, about, about a month ago in one of the sermons. And you remember there that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 15 is that it is possible that someone would, would be a recipient of the gospel of grace and be saved, so have this foundation. He uses a metaphor of a foundation in a building. He says, have a foundation of Jesus Christ and build on that foundation. He says, if you build with precious stones, with jewels, right, with gospel-identified things, he says, that will receive a reward. But if you build upon the foundation of Jesus with wood or hay or stubble, again, things that are not worthy of the gospel. If you build with those things, those things will be burned up and you will suffer loss even while you are saved. In other words, he says, you'll be eternally in the presence of God and yet somehow you will experience a loss when you stand before God. Now, I, I don't pretend to know exactly what that looks like or what it means, but I take the scripture at face value when it says that it will happen. So when he says there that there, will, there is the possibility of being in Christ, being saved, and yet still experiencing some version, some idea, some concept of a loss because we haven't spent our lives well. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.15 is talking about. And he's referring to that same idea here, same group of people, the Corinthians. And he's saying to them here, you suffered no loss through us. What he's recognizing is that for those who want to serve God, it will be necessary to engage in these kinds of hard conversations because our perspective is what will happen? What will happen if I don't? They will experience a loss in the presence of God. And that's what Paul has in mind. He'd much rather risk being in in a difficult situation with them and help them avoid a loss in eternity versus Avoid that conversation now, make things easier for himself, and yet then they would experience a loss because they were never experiencing godly grief that led to repentance, that led to reward eternally versus loss. You guys follow that? So it's that kind of a perspective of what takes place in the presence of God that is necessary for us. Number five, worldly grief is intrinsically self-centered and reinforces spiritual blindness. Now notice he paints a contrast here. Here's what he says. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So important to know then, right, that there's such a thing as godly grief, but there's also such a thing as what? As worldly grief. You might ask, well, why does worldly grief, what is it? Why does it produce death? And godly grief, why does it produce life? Godly grief produces life because it produces repentance, walking away from sin and back towards God. So worldly grief then is the antithesis of that idea. What worldly grief is, is grieving not because, feeling sorrow, not because of the sin that we have committed that has drawn us away from God, but it's sorrow that we feel really for being caught in our sin. It's the sorrow that we feel for the price we pay for not doing what is right. 
Now we've, we've, if you're a parent, you've experienced this, right? This is the version of essentially, I'm just sad that I got caught. I'm not sad that I did wrong, right? And here's why that leads to death. Because the person who experiences worldly grief is intrinsically self-centered. They're saying, I don't like what I got, I don't like the price I am paying right now. I don't like what it's costing me, but there's no true sorrow over the thing done that brought about the cost. And when that true sorrow over the thing doesn't exist, then repentance won't come. What comes is a deeper entrenchment and a deeper commitment to being able to do that thing without being caught. And so it entrenches you further into death and away from life. That's what he's talking about here. Worldly grief versus godly grief. Number six, the one who causes grief cannot completely determine whether that grief will be godly or worldly. The one who causes the grief cannot determine whether that grief is godly or worldly. This one will set you free, friends, okay? Because one of the things that you need to know is that while you may be called to engage in a difficult conversation and you may do everything just right, you may be humble, you may have true affection for them, you may speak with clarity and boldness, but also reminding I'm not rejecting you relationally, I'm in, I wanna even walk with you through this repentance process. I don't want you to go anywhere. You are loved in this place. No matter how well you do it, it's still very possible that that person might receive that and respond to it with worldly grief rather than godly grief. And you need to know that because what it does is it frees you from feeling like you have to do it just perfect so that you get the right result. It is not ultimately in your hands whether or not worldly grief or godly grief is the product. It is in large part determined by the person who receives it. Now here's where it does, here's where this flip it around now. Because when you're on the receiving end of these conversations, how you receive them goes a long way to determining whether or not you will experience godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to life, or whether or not you will experience worldly grief that leads to what? It leads to death. So remember, when you're on the receiving end, how you receive these kinds of hard conversations is of the utmost importance. Perhaps think of it this way. Uh, we just had Thanksgiving. Turkey's really hard, right? You can do everything right with a turkey. Like you can do, you can, you can do the, the butter on the skin and the salt and the pepper and put all the, what are the fragrant things you put in the middle? I can't think, I don't know why. You put everything in it, you do it just right, you follow the recipe just so, and it still comes out what? Dry. Stinking turkey, it's so hard, right? You can do everything just right, and yet somehow it doesn't produce the right result. It's kind of like that, right? Now, some of you, if you nail your turkey every time, this analogy is not for you, right? <laughs> it's unhelpful at that point. Number seven, godly grief can reveal forgotten affection. I love this one. Look at verse 12, okay? He says, so although... I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us, or your affection for us, might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Now, did you catch that? He doesn't just say, look, he says, look, we brought this conflict to you, we brought this hard conversation, in order that your earnestness or your affection might be revealed, and you would think the next phrase should be to us, to Paul and Titus. We would love to be reminded that you actually care for us. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, we brought the hard conversation to you so that your earnestness, your affection for us would be revealed 
Not to us, but to who? But to you, Corinthians. In other words, what he's saying is, when you're willing to have these hard conversations, Paul's saying, I I was willing to say the hard thing because part of what I hoped might happen through it is that you would be reminded that this turmoil that we feel with one another is not as it should be, and you would be reminded of that you actually love us. You would remember that, and it would draw you towards repentance. It would draw you towards life because of your love for us. Now, I find this to be true, don't you? That when you're in conflict with someone you love, the conflict itself reminds you of how much you love them. Now, some of us may just get into hard, you know, you get into hard conversations. But look, when you feel a, a, a wall of division with someone that you love, that's really hard. It, it's hard to linger in that state, isn't it? It's very difficult to live life that way. And you find yourself, oh, that pain that you feel over that relational break is in part what is meant to lead you to repentance because it's reminding you that it's not meant to be this way in the body of Christ. People are not meant to live with division among them, unreconciled conflict. They're meant to work through those things so that God would be glorified and his mission would go forward. So I love the reminder that godly grief can reveal forgotten affection. So if you find yourself struggling to want to have hard conversations like this, remind yourself. I mean, literally, just it's the most basic reminder. Remind yourself that on the other side of this conflict, there is a deeper relationship and a deeper affection and a deeper love for this person that, that can happen. The other side of it is gonna be glorious. It's gonna be good because you have to know what's on the other side of conflict that's worth getting through. Otherwise, you just won't go there or you'll try and figure out a way around it. But you gotta go through it. Number eight, to cause godly grief, you have to see the big picture. That's the beginning of verse 12, so I probably should have flipped these two. But he says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Okay, so pause. What he's talking about there is the conflict that existed between these different members of the Corinthian church and that Paul got involved with, at which point then he, the church was in conflict with him. It, it just, it bred conflict. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, ultimately, I didn't have in mind these two individuals, the one who suffered the wrong, the one who caused the wrong. Ultimately, my aim was not just these two. I was seeing a bigger picture. I was seeing the danger to the entire church that the conflict between these two members and now between me and you, that the danger that it is to the gospel's mission. And friends, here, I alluded to this earlier. Here's what I want you to understand. When you, when you live unreconciled in relationship with other followers of Jesus, in particular in the same local church, you are hindering the mission of the gospel in the world. The world, people that don't know Jesus can go anywhere to find unreconciled relationships. It's not hard. They can go anywhere to find people who are too proud, who are too stubborn, who, are too, who find it too hard to have those kinds of conversations, who don't love deeply enough to have those kinds of conversations. You can go anywhere. I could, throw, I could walk outside the church, throw a rock, and I would hit something that was unreconciled. It wouldn't take me long. Wherever you go to lunch today, you're gonna be sitting around people with unreconciled relationships, lots of them. If the mission of the gospel is gonna go forward, it is in large part dependent on our willingness to have these kinds of hard conversations and love one another through them. That's one of the big differences that the gospel is supposed to make for us. 
is that we refuse to live with unreconciled relationships. As far as it depends on us, we seek to be reconciled at every turn, everywhere we go. And when we need to have the hard conversation, we have it. And we need to receive the hard conversation, we receive it. Got to see the big picture and recognize that, look, if, if you really believe that you were purchased by Jesus and your life is not your own anymore, then that means your life is aimed at causing the gospel to go forward in the world, right? Somebody say amen. If that's the truth, then recognize that your unreconciled relationships or your willingness, lack of willingness to have these kinds of hard conversations is preventing the gospel from taking root and going forward in the way that it needs to. That's about as blunt as I can be about it. Last one, number nine. Reconciled relationships cannot happen without godly grief. Last thing to probably acknowledge, right, is that repentance and reconciliation cannot happen without godly grief. If I can say gracious to you, if you kind of imagine that you'll be able to experience sort of reconciliation, repentance, all the good without without experiencing the sorrow, the godly sorrow over sin that leads to repentance, then you are misunderstanding the nature of repentance and sin. You cannot go around grief. You cannot go over it. You cannot go under it. You must go through it. The only way to ultimately get to the place of reconciliation and repentance is to feel godly sorrow over sin. There is no other pathway. So if you've been looking for that other easier pathway to get there, can I just tell you, there's only one road. And it's a road that is, it's, it has sorrow on it. It is hard, but the other side of it is glorious and good. The other side of that hard conversation, the other side of that conflict, when you engage it in a godly fashion, the other side is so good because it is being right with God. It's in the state of repentance and wholeness and holiness. It's just, it's it, it will bring joy into your life. And I need you to see, I need you to believe there can be a deeper joy than you are now experiencing if you will be willing to go through these kinds of moments. If you'll be willing to give and receive these kinds of conflicts and go through godly sorrow, it will bring you to a place of deep and abiding joy because it'll be a place marked by holiness and righteousness, reconciled relationships. Gotta go through godly grief, no other way. No other way. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. I pray that it would take root in us, Lord, and let it begin with me. Let me not imagine that I would stand up here and preach without being subject to this. Father, pray. And I would just say to you, this is hard. It's really hard. And so we pray that you would make us able, the strength we need. We know it's not in us, but it is in you, and you're in us. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us able, convict us, move us forward. Thank you that you're gracious when you do. Thank you that the scriptures tell us that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. That's a good truth. Thank you. Father, I pray that you would have your way with us individually and as a church. We love you. Give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.